Genesis chapter 3. Page 5 in the Bibles, and I'm going to read verses 14 to 24. So we start reading at verse 14. So the Lord God said to the snake, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Uh, Let's pray. Let's ask that God would help us um, as we turn to his word. Father, we've been singing about your greatness. We've been singing about who you are. We've been singing about your great love for us. And Father, we ask now, please help us as we look at this word. Teach us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. If you ask me, would I like a cup of coffee? And I say yes. And you say, how do you take your coffee? And I tell you, I take it white without sugar. And then you ignore what I say and bring me a black coffee with three sugars. I will be mildly offended. And in fact, I will think to myself, why did you ask me what I wanted? Why did you ask me what I like, only to ignore it? Here is the central conviction on which Globe Church is built. Are you ready? In the Bible, God reveals himself to us. He tells us who he is. The Bible is not a list of rules for us to obey. It's not a list of parables for us to understand how the snake got no legs. It's not that. The Bible at its heart is God revealing himself to us. This is me. Therefore, it's the height of human arrogance 
to picture God or to imagine God or to think of God in another way. Actually, I prefer to think of God like this. Whoa, 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 he's revealed himself to you. That is where we start as a church. We believe the Bible is God revealing himself to us. And this afternoon, I've just got one simple point, one simple thing that God reveals about who he is. And that is this truth, that God is the judge. That's what Genesis 3 shows us. And if you like, that is the second big truth the Bible shows us. You know, as you start in Genesis chapter 1, first God reveals that he's the creator. He is the good, loving creator. That's truth number one. You've got to know that. Do you know that you were created? Do you know that you have a creator? That's truth number one. Get it in your heads and in your heart. God made you and he's the creator. But here's truth number two. You only have to go a couple of chapters later. Truth number two, God is the judge. Now, immediately we might go, oh, I like the idea of God being a creator. Not so sure about him being a judge. Well, if God is a good and loving creator, then he's not suddenly changed character. He's still good and loving, so he is a good and loving judge. That's what God's going to reveal to us. That's what we're going to see in Genesis chapter 3. Okay, here it is, the first ever judgment day in all of history. This is judgment day. This is the precursor to every courtroom drama. John Grisham would have had nothing without Genesis 3. This is a courtroom. A crime has been committed, right? We saw this two weeks ago. It is a defiant rebellion against the God of heaven. Now look... Please don't sit there and think, all they did was eat some fruit. That is not all they did. When they took the fruit and ate, what they were doing was not simply eating fruit. It was a deliberate attempt to take God's place. It started with the snake. The snake who is the great enemy of God. And the man and woman willingly joined in the rebellion. And they have tried to seize the throne of heaven. They've tried to ascend to God's place and say, no, we'll be God. You tell us not to eat that fruit? No, no, we'll eat that fruit. That's the crime. They want the crown. So a crime has been committed. And last week we saw that God came to the garden. He came to establish the facts. He calls out the defendants. They're busy hiding behind trees. They come out of hiding and they speak. The man makes his excuses. The woman makes hers. But now all of that is done. Look at verse 14. So the Lord God said. Now the judge speaks. There's nothing more for anyone else to say. No one else speaks in the rest of this chapter. Only God. God alone, it's only his voice that matters now. Everyone else falls silent. What will he say? What will the judge say? Hearts are pounding. 
You cannot overestimate the drama of this moment. The whole of creation is standing on tiptoe. It's holding its breath, waiting. What will he say? The future of the whole world is hanging in the balance. What will the judge say? Do you see, that is who God is. God is the judge. His words determine everything. We've got to get this clear. Do you know, we so often want to shrink God down. We so often want to kind of package God up into something a little bit more manageable. But he will not allow us to do that. He is not a disappointed father. He's not simply a wounded lover. He's not a heartbroken author who packs up his things and disappointedly shuffles off the stage. That's not who God is. God does not sit in heaven going, oh, they don't love me. They don't love me. That's not who God is. Neither is God a distant and disinterested deity who is busily getting on with stuff in heaven. Far too busy to be involved in the earth he's created. Oh, who cares what's going on down there? That's not God either. That's not our God. The Lord God is imminent. He is personal. He is near. He comes into his garden. Yes, he is the transcendent creator. And yet he is the imminent judge who comes right into his creation. He stoops to come near. Do you see? Do you see what's happening? What we're being introduced to here is the judge. This is the first judgment day for the brand new world. Look, it's only just got started. And yet we're already at judgment day. God will act. God must act. He will not allow this defiant rebellion to continue unchecked. He will not allow sin to go unpunished, so he comes near to judge. I hope you can see how somber this is. I hope you can see the weightiness of this moment. We used to have a CD in our CD collection called Laughing on Judgment Day by a band called Thunder. It was my wife's rock days. (laughs) That is a astonishing title for an album laughing on judgment day people in our world scoff at the idea of judgment (laughs) judgment you are having a laugh what a joke and yet Genesis presents us right at the start with the God who is the judge now I think this is very important for us to really get clear in our heads Now, if you're sitting here going, man, this is a miserable sermon. Look, it's Genesis 3, all right? Let me show you where we're going, okay? This is the whole sermon, just so you've got some light, all right? This is where we're heading. These are my three points. First, we're going to think about the judge. We've begun to see the judge. We're then going to think about the judgment that he issues. But then we're going to see that this judgment is laced with hope. And that this judge is not what you first think he is. So hang in there. But we have to see that God is the judge. I think many people in our world are happy to admit that they aren't perfect. You know, if I went down the street and said, are you perfect? No, I don't think I'm perfect. 
Would you describe yourself as a sinner? Ooh, yeah. Yeah, probably fairly happy to admit I'm a sinner. I've done stuff wrong. People are happy to admit that. But what they're not willing to admit and what they're not willing to accept is that one day they will be judged. If we were to ask the question, what is the biggest problem with the world? I wonder what people would say. (laughs) We had a very funny thing. um, Well, it's funny in our family. It probably isn't very funny to you, but I'll share it anyway. Uh, We were given a leaflet once um, by an organization whose initials are S-I-M. And the the front of the uh, leaflet said something like, the greatest problem facing humanity is dot, dot, dot. And then inside it had some stuff about Jesus and stuff like that, about sin and stuff. But of course it was very funny because they had their logo at the bottom of the front. Now my youngest son is called Sim. So we were given a leaflet that says, the greatest problem facing humanity is Sim. (laughs) And... uh, That became a fairly standard line in our house (laughs) for a little while, actually. Um, I'm not sure how upbuilding it was to my youngest son. But I wonder what you would say. What is the biggest problem facing... The biggest problem facing humanity is what? Some of you will have heard um, of G.K. Chesterton. He was... um, Many years ago, the Times ran a kind of thing about this. They said, what's the biggest problem facing humanity? And G.K. Chesterton wrote a letter. Do you know what he said? Anyone know the story? He said, I am. Dear sir, I am. Yours sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. Here's my question. Is he right? Is that right? What is the biggest problem facing humanity? Now, I want to say in many ways, yes, he is right. But there's a profound way in which he's wrong. You see, this is what we've done. We want to make ourselves the biggest problem. Because we're so obsessed with humanity being the centre of everything. So we say, of course, yes, we're the biggest problem. It's all about us. It's all about our failure. And because we're the biggest problem, therefore we must be the ones who solve it. We must be the ones who rise up. We must be the ones who find a problem. Find a solution. This is why Michael Jackson can come along and sing his song, Heal the World, Make It a Better Place, for you and for me and the entire, not singing, the entire human race. We must care, if you care enough for the living. This is the, the plea, right? Humanity has spoiled this world. Humanity's broken this world. We've messed up this world. We've got to heal it. Come on. Heal the world. If you could just care, if you could just Sort the problems out. We can rise up. We can do this, people. Let's go. Genesis 3 says that the biggest problem facing our world is not human sin. Okay, now you're going to have to, you're going to, have to hear me out on this, okay, because you're going to not like this when I first say this. The biggest problem facing humanity, facing our world, is God. The biggest problem facing our world is that there is a God who is a judge. You see, if there was no God who was judge, our sin wouldn't matter. The other day I was driving along the A13 and um, there was a guy driving like a complete maniac. He was weaving in and out, you know, not like me, law-abiding, driving very carefully and sensibly. 
He was cutting people up. He was weaving in and out. Very dangerous. And you feel that frustration because he was just getting away with it, right? He was like getting much further ahead than me, which sort of irritated me. Then the best thing ever happened. Like literally the best thing ever. The car in front of me, suddenly its headlights went blue. And I was like, oh, praise the Lord. This is wonderful. This is terrific. It was an undercover police car. Woo, woo, woo. I was like, come on. Pulls the guy over. I wanted to stop and watch. You see, here is the guy driving like a lunatic. His driving is only a problem when the police car's there. Up until that point, it was dangerous, but it was, he was getting away with it. And when we discover in the Bible that there is a God who will judge, who does judge, there is a God who comes and sees and punishes sin, suddenly we realize that's our problem. It isn't now. Of course our sin is the problem. It's our sin that is, causes the judge to be angry. I get that. Of course it's, I, I'm, I'm making a point, all right? But I want you to see that actually God is a big problem to our world. Because God is so pure and he's so perfect and he's so good and he's so beautiful in every way that when he sees what is wicked and evil and He must act. Now let me, um, I really just want to push this. We're we're still on like the first three words of verse 14, but we're going to speed up a lot. Um, I I do want to really push this. When I started to write this talk, um, and I, I started to write it, and the big thing I wrote down was sin has consequences. And I I was going to write a whole sermon about the consequences of sin. Can I say to you that, again, I want us to be really sharp. That's not right. Sin does have consequences. Hang on now. I I know this is slightly complicated today, but I'm trying to just push us a little bit. I know that sin sin does have consequences. We saw that last week. The men and women are ashamed. They're ashamed of each other. They have to hide. There are consequences to sin. But what we get in Genesis 3 is not simply the consequences of sin. You see, we like to think of God as a passive judge who says, fine, you've chosen sin, so you'll get its consequences. In the same way that, you know, my kids might eat a bowl full of sweets and I say, well, they'll get, they'll get their just desserts. They'll, they'll feel sick and that will be their punishment. And we sort of would like it to be that because then it kind of makes God seem a little bit nicer, right? Softens God. Because all God is doing is handing us over to our consequences. That, that's all God's doing. And we, we love this stuff. You know, we, the kind of instant karma, the natural justice, the videos on YouTube. You, if you've ever been on... Oh, perhaps this is going to expose me. Anyway, you know those videos on YouTube, the kind of instant karma where someone does something wrong and then something happens to them and it's like they get punished because of the consequence of their sin. Those sorts of things. We love that sort of thing. But actually, that's not what God does here. God doesn't come to his creation and say, okay, I'm just going to, okay, I'm just going to give you the consequences of what you've chosen. 
That's not what God does. It is not consequences. That, this is a punishment. This is a sentence that God passes on sin. I'm trying to be sharp on this because I want us to not be confused. I, I get that for some of us this will be uncomfortable, but we have to see God as he truly is. He doesn't just come and say, fine, that's it. He actually comes and speaks a word of sentence upon his creation. The Bible presents us with a God the judge. I've been very, very humbled and challenged by this in the last couple of days. I think I trivialize God. I treat him as someone who's there to be messed around with. Adam and Eve discovered that that is not who God is. We've got to feel now. There's hope coming, all right? Wait for the hope, but you've got to see the weightiness of who God is. God speaks. Right, now we're going to go through the judgments very quickly. What is the judgment then that God speaks um, onto his creation? And the first one is um, enemies defeated. Firstly, he speaks to the snake. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the snake, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. God speaks first to the snake. Now the snake represents the spiritual reality of Satan. who was the first to try and snatch God's throne. And God looks his enemy in the eye and he consigns him to defeat. You will eat dust. That's God's sentence on his enemy. He says, you will lose. Satan, there in the garden, he looked Satan in the eye and he said, Satan, you will lose. You will lose. I don't think this necessarily means that before this snake could walk, as if, you know, somehow this is the kind of... And here's how snakes lost their legs. I don't, I don't think that's what's going on here. I think the snake probably already was a slithering creature. And God says, Satan, this, this animal you've chosen, that's right. That's what you will be. You will be a slithering loser. You will eat dust. And one day, your head will be crushed powerful. That is the verdict God speaks on his enemy. Cursed are you. And that is the same judgment that falls on every single enemy of God who rises up and tries to take his throne. One by one, God says to his enemies, you will lose. You will lose. One by one, they are defeated. One by one, they are brought down. One by one, they are crushed. From Pharaoh to Nebuchadnezzar to Herod, one by one they're brought crashing down. As God keeps his promise in the garden, Satan, you will lose. And right here, here's the warning. Don't join that team. Don't join Team Snake. It is bad news. And even when the enemy looks powerful, Genesis 3 says he will lose. He will lose. Because God has pronounced his judgment. Enemies are defeated. Now, we're going to preach a whole sermon next week just on verse 15. 
because it's so important. So I'm not going to spoil that because that's for next week. But it's all about Jesus. But we'll do that next week, okay? The defeat of Satan through the work of Jesus. We're going to do a whole week on that next time. But now, look, he turns his attention to humanity. He turns to the woman and the man. And what we discover is that the world is cursed. Right now, look, let's, let's um, try and stay alert. Um, imagine you're the, the, the woman, okay? Here it comes. God has spoken to the snake and he said, Cursed are you. Now he turns to the woman. Can you, can you even imagine what she must be feeling? She must assume that God is going to say to her, Cursed are you. You will die. But does God say, Cursed are you? Does God say, Cursed are you to the woman or to the man? No. Cursed are you, snake. Cursed are you. Cursed are you. But to the man and the woman? Cursed is the ground because of you. You have to see the difference, right? You have to look carefully at what God is doing. The curse, the the punishment on the man and the woman is that they will now live in a creation that is cursed. They will now live in a cursed world. Where before they lived in a blessed world, not anymore. Now they live in a cursed world. Now they will experience pain, verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Pain. I've never experienced pain before. What's pain, God? Pain is God's judgment on his creation. This is heartbreaking. And in the specific areas where humanity was blessed is where they experience now the pain. In chapter 1, blessed. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number. Childbearing was to be this great blessing that belonged to... But not anymore. Now childbearing becomes painful. The whole having children now becomes an agony rather than a joy. Marriage. Where God created this marriage that was so good, you will love, you you will be together, you will be one flesh. Not anymore. Now you're desirable for your husband and he will rule over you. First sight, it sounds, well, that's nice. If you're desirable for your husband, that sounds good. Actually, that's not quite what it's getting at. It's actually talking about a conflict within marriage where now rather than standing as partners, shoulder to shoulder, one in in God's beautiful marriage, now they're turned in on themselves. And the man uses his strength to try and dominate and powerfully rule. And where the woman seeks to manipulate and take control and... Spoiled. It is a shocking tragic break. This is the battle of the sexes. It's so wrong. This is where all of the abuse of women and all of it, it's not the way God made it to be. It's 
all wrong. What about to the ground, uh, to the man? He turns to the ground, to the man, and he says, "Cursed is the ground because of you." Can you imagine the ground going, "What? I never did anything." But no, this is the this is the punishment. That now you live in a world which is cursed. The ground now works against you rather than working for you. In the garden, as the as the man worked. The garden produced fruit. It's like the ground came up to the man and said, Hello, man. How can I help you? How could we work together to create something good? Not anymore. Now, look what it says. Verse 18, It will produce thorns and thistles for you. Now the ground says, Here you go. Thorns and thistles. Eat that. Choke on that. Do you see now there's this hostility, this battle between the man and between the ground. There's a struggle going on. There's something about the world that is frustrating. It produces thorn, all the weeds, weeding. Adam's like, weed? What's a weed? I can never work out as a kid. And to be honest, I still can't work it out. Why weeds seem to grow... So much better than any other plant. I spent hours weeding my dad's garden. I'm like, to be honest, if the onions just did a better job of growing, I wouldn't have to spend all my time pulling out this weedy stuff. Why do weeds... Well, because we live in a world that's cursed. Because the, the world works against humanity now. In Romans chapter 8... Um, We haven't got time to turn to it now. But in Romans chapter 8, Paul talks about the world being in bondage to decay. The whole of creation is spoiled. It's all been caught up because humanity is turned against God. The whole thing is spoiled. The whole thing is ruined. It's decaying. The judgment on human sin is that the world is screwed up. It's hostile. Do you know Bear Grylls, right? Bear Grylls would have been useless in the Garden of Eden. You know, I'm in a hostile environment and everything anywhere near me might kill me at any moment. You ever seen Bear Grylls? If you've never seen Bear Grylls, this will make no sense. <laughs> in the Garden of Eden, it was all nice. Hi, Bear. Do you want a fruit? <laughs> will it kill me? Of course it won't kill you. But now, Bear Grylls. Bear Grylls only has a job because of the curse. <laughs> Next time you see him, remember that. <laughs> we feel it every day. And do you know what? In this great struggle between humanity and the ground, the ground wins. Dirt wins. You spend your life fighting dirt and then you lose. By the sweat of your brow, verse 19, you, you'll eat your food until you return to the ground since from it you were taken for dust you are and to dust you will return. That's the curse on man. But the man is not cursed. The ground is cursed. And now his experience of life is so hard until ultimately he dies. That is what God said would happen. God was not lying. He's the judge who keeps his word. It is God's ultimate judgment on sin. You will die. And every time someone dies, we're reminded that God is the judge. Every time I pull a weed out of the ground, every time I feel sweat running down my brow, every time I feel pain, every time, every time, 
it reminds me that this world is under a curse. We feel it every day. And then the third part of God's judgment is that humanity is banished. No longer can humanity live with God in the garden. Have a look at verse 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. The Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he'd been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. They're sent out of the garden. In particular, they cannot eat from the tree of life anymore. God will not allow their rebellion to go on unchecked. He will bring it to an end. And the world's first security guard is employed to make sure that they don't come back. Have you ever been thrown out of anywhere? Hands up if you've ever been thrown out of somewhere. Let's have a look. I bet Trevor you have, haven't you? Yeah. I was thrown out of Aquasplash once in Hemel Hempstead. It was, it was not my fault. I was a youth leader with a particularly stroppy 16-year-old who had a run-in with the security guard and we both got banned for six months. There was no way back. He was big. He was not letting us back in. It feels pretty rubbish being chucked out. I felt quite sad about being banned from Aquasplash. But here is humanity being cast out of the garden, cast out of God's presence, cast out from the tree of life, and there is no way back. This could not be clearer. I want you to imagine Adam walking away from the garden, Adam and Eve together walking away, looking back over their shoulder, and all they can see is a flaming sword. We can't go back there. And now humanity walks into this hostile world where there'll be sweat and pain and tears and thorns. God is judge. He takes sin very seriously. And over and again, over again in the Bible, you discover that God's punishment on sin is that people are driven away from him. You cannot live in God's presence and be a sinner. But look, we need to move to the hope, okay? Come on, it's the hope. This is a good bit, right? It is good that God judges sin, but that even through this, there's just this note that's it's kind of bursting out. For a start, it's not the end. God doesn't wipe them out. He could have done, couldn't he? Fine. It's the end of that. Start again. He could have wiped out creation, but he doesn't. There's hope here. Eve is going to be the mother of all the living. There will still be children. This is going to continue. And perhaps most beautifully of all, I want you to notice verse 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Isn't that fascinating? In the middle of judgment, right? God is judging them. You're going to die. You're going to eat dust. You're going to do this. You're going to be cast out the garden. You're going to... Oh, and here's some clothes. What's that? Here's hope. Here's what our God is like. In the midst of judgment, even in the midst of judgment, God acts to cover their shame. 
you remember that then they were naked and they made their fig leaves and it was like, oh, this is a bit pathetic. God says, I will cover your shame. And he covers their shame by taking an animal, killing an animal in order to produce clothes to clothe them. The blood of an animal is shed instead of them. Who should have been the, who should have been the first death in all of creation? What should have been the first death in all of creation? It should have been Adam and Eve, but it's not. The first death in all creation is the animal that died in order that God might provide clothes in order that their shame might be covered. And so sets in train this great storyline of the Bible by which God provides a covering for human sin, by which God provides a way for human sin to be covered over. As you see again and again through the pages of Scripture, that an animal sacrifice in some way can pay for human sin. And you trace it through, and Jesus comes and is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is killed, and as He dies, He gives you clothes to wear. Robes of righteousness. He says, put these on, cover your shame. Because I am taking you home. I want you to turn to Revelation 22, the last book of the Bible, the last chapter of the Bible. There's a tiny phrase which really should make our hearts sing. Revelation 22, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the rivers to the tree of life, bearing twelve crops, it's there, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. No longer will there be any curse. All of the pain, all of the sweat, all of the frustration, all of the death, all of it, gone. No longer will there be any curse. Because God has made a way for you to come back to him. He's provided a lamb. He's provided an animal. He's provided his son to die. Jesus Christ has died to clothe you, to cover you, so that when you meet God as judge, he will smile and say, come on in, welcome home. So this afternoon, do you know that's hope? I know that you've experienced the curse. I know that you've experienced the pain of living in this world. I know that you know what the curse feels like because we all feel it. But if you look to the one who can give you hope, so that on judgment day, the banner that hangs over your life is not laughing on Judgment Day, it is trusting on Judgment Day. Smiling on Judgment Day. (laughs) Yes, laughing on Judgment Day. Because now I'm going home. If I can trouble you for just one extra minute, can you you give me one more minute? (laughs) I'm going to anyway, so you might as well like smile and say yes. 
I want to give you something really practical. Because you might say, yeah, but we're not there. How do we live in this world? How do we live in this painful world? Okay, I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians 12. This is the last thing we're going to do, 2 Corinthians 12. Page 1166. So 2 Corinthians 12, I want you to look halfway through verse 7. Paul says, Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. How do you live in a thorny world? How do you live when the thorns dig into your flesh? You plead with God to take it away. Oh my God, my Father, please help me. Take away this pain. Take away this pain. Take away this sorrow. That's what Paul did. He pleaded with God to take it away. And sometimes God will, and sometimes he won't. But when he doesn't take the thorn away, he smiles on you and says, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient trust me. And I'm just aware that there may well be people here today who say, I feel the pain, I feel the thorns, I feel it. Well, here's a practical way that you can apply this. Ask God to take it away, but trust him in your weakness. Because sometimes God uses our pain to remind us of how much we need him. To remind us that this is not our home, to remind us that we still live in a world that is cursed and to long for the day when we see him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're sorry for every time when we have trivialized you. For every time when we've acted as if sin doesn't really matter. When we've been like that guy driving down the road, just weaving in and out of the traffic, not worried about anything. Father, we pray that we would see that you are the judge. That you have judged this world and one day you will judge this world again. But you've provided Christ. And so in this thorny world, we ask that you would please help us to trust you. Amen.